everybody today we are welcoming back dr aaron cariardi he is of course a, a psychiatrist who was at the uci school of medicine he was one of the directors of the bioethics uh, committee at the time he'll give us specific details on that and uh, because he didn't think the vaccine policies was particularly ethical he was eventually dismissed from his job there after years of teaching at the highest level and uh, he's presently director of the medical ethics program uh, let's see, California Department of State Hospitals. He has worked with the uh, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. Uh, he's got a new book coming out, and he also has a lawsuit, I believe, that's been sort of reissued. I, I want to get some details on that. Dr. Cariardi has been a guest here before. He's got a lot of interesting ideas. He's been thinking about the overreach, which is something we've been talking about a good deal on this program, Dr. Kelly, Victory, and I. His new book, as you just saw up there, it is called The... New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State is available now. I suggest you read it. His story is hair-raising, and we'll get into it right after this. Of course, we're out there on um, Twitter Spaces to take your calls as well. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying. You go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, everyone. Of course, I'm watching you all on the restream here, checking out your comments, as well as over on the Rumble Rants. There's just a few of you over there, and uh, Jay Hep wants to know if Dr. McCullough really indeed lose his license. We will talk about that. We were, of course, on Twitter Spaces. Uh, I don't know that we're actually going to have time for calls today because uh, Dr. Cariotti is so, such an interesting Cariotti is such an interesting source of conversation. I do want to get right to him. As I said, he's a psychiatrist. He was the director of the program in bioethics, uh, and he is presently doing a lot of other things because he was dismissed from those jobs. Uh, welcome, Dr. Cariotti. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Drew. It's always good to be with you. Glad to be back. It is good to have you back. Uh, the book is out now, The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. I'm sure it's uh, detailed uh, sort of history of what you went through. Give people just a little sketch who may you know, may not have seen your other appearances on this program. Sure. So the, the book was published yesterday, and it just so happens that that was the one-year anniversary of the day that the University of California placed me on 
unpaid suspension for alleged noncompliance with their vaccine mandate. And a month after that, the following December last year, the university fired me. Uh, prior to them placing me on leave, I had challenged the university's vaccine mandate in federal court uh, on behalf of people like me who had natural immunity, who had already had recovered from COVID infection. That case, by the way, Drew, is still in federal court at the appellate level. The university dismissed me before the district court judge had, had weighed in on the case or made a ruling. Uh, so they, they didn't let any grass grow under their feet. And actually, about a month ago, the CDC uh, finally came around to catching up with the science on natural immunity and endorsed, perfectly endorsed with its new guidelines, uh, my central argument in the case, which is that we should no longer and shouldn't have in the past discriminated uh, between the vaccinated and unvaccinated populations for two reasons that the CDC cited. First, natural immunity or infection-induced immunity is robust and durable over time, and over 90% of Americans now have had COVID, whether they were vaccinated or unvaccinated. And the second reason, which I cited in my lawsuit, is not news. Pfizer recently admitted this, but this has been known from the very beginning, is that the vaccines did not prevent infection and trans transmission. So the whole argument that you should get vaccinated for the sake of other people, even if you personally are not going to benefit, that may have been true if we had a sterilizing vaccine that stopped infection and transmission. But we knew very early on during the vaccine rollout that these available vaccines for COVID could not do that. So that, that's where my case is currently. And the book uh, does detail my fight with the University of California in chapter two. Uh, it also talks about my fight with uh, the FDA on data transparency. So the FOIA request to get the Pfizer clinical trials data with the FDA, my battles with the CDC, and so forth. But more than just being a retrospective on our pandemic policies or sort of post-mortem on our pandemic policies, what I discovered in researching this book, uh, to understand why we adopted the policies that we did, even though they were ineffective at controlling the pandemic, and even though they did a lot of collateral damage, things like lockdowns and school closures, vaccine mandates, vaccine passports, these things didn't actually achieve the public health purposes for which they were supposedly instituted. Uh, and yet they stayed in place for a long time. The, the University of California still has their vaccine mandate in place in spite of the fact that it contradicts the latest CDC guidelines, which was their only defense a year ago. You know, we're just following the CDC. I don't know what their defense is now. So the question naturally arose for me, well, if the if the purported public health justification is not holding up, then what really motivated uh, the uh, these misguided policies? And I discovered that you have to look at the broader economic interests. You have to look at the broader uh, political interests that were at work to really understand what happened. And the other thing that I discovered is that the whole infrastructure of um, uh, that was rolled out during COVID, what I call in the subtitle, the biomedical security state is still in place, just waiting for the next declared public health crisis. And specifically what, what I mean by that term, the biomedical security state, is a, an increasingly militarized public health apparatus that's actually been in the works for about 20 years, really manifested in the last three years during the COVID pandemic. 
Um, but it has a history that goes back to really the, the, the months and years following 9-11. So an increasingly militarized public health. The second element is uh, the, the use of digital technologies of surveillance and control to monitor and control large populations. The QR code-based vaccine passport being sort of one, one sign of, uh, the, of that aspect of the biomedical security state. And these two things, militarized public health, digital technologies of surveillance and control are backed up by the police powers of the state. And again, even though some of the specific COVID-related policies that I criticize in the book have been rolled back, uh, there are serious proposals in, in place to redeploy them to address other crises and, and other issues that are being redefined as public health crises. Climate change is a good example of that. Even before the pandemic, we, if you read the headlines carefully on climate change, you see, and again, regardless of you know, your position on climate change or you know, your policy views on climate change, climate change has been redefined from primarily an environmental issue that's about ecology uh, to a public health issue. It's been reframed primarily in, in terms of its harm to human health. Uh, and there's serious proposals on the table now to declare climate change a public health crisis. People at Ivy League universities, politicians in positions of power and authority that have proposed in the last year or two that we should use, for example, rolling lockdowns to address the climate crisis or to address the energy crisis. Folks may remember during the pandemic during the initial lockdowns of the pandemic, uh, when we had the George Floyd protests and the BLM uh, riots uh, in, in many of our cities here, 1,200 public health officials came out with this public letter uh, claiming that racism was a public health crisis. So we had a public health crisis to deal with COVID. We had an emergency to deal with uh, this virus, but we had a, another emergency of racism that sort of, at least temporarily for some group of people, superseded the COVID crisis and, and meant that they could gather in public in mass gatherings when all of the rest of us were supposed to stay at home. So this, this taking of other issues out of the realm of uh, 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 sort of something that the public as a whole has to deal with, racism as a, as a moral issue or racism, racism as a political issue, reframing it as a public health issue sort of puts it under the under the control or, or the aegis of, of the so-called experts, right? Rather than um, placing this problem or this issue in the hands of ordinary citizens. And this, this kind of model of a rule by experts, what some people have called a technocracy, I argue in the book, I argue in The New Abnormal, runs contrary to the basic principles of a free and open democracy where you know everyone is in possession of rationality and common sense. You may not be an epidemiologist, you may not be a virologist, you may not have certain credentials that would qualify you as a public health expert. Um, but you know, you, you still have a say. You, you can still spot uh, a logical contradiction. You can still see when someone on TV who's saying something and is supposedly speaking from their expertise is contradicting, let's say, what they said on TV a month ago. Um, you know, all of us, whether you're a scientist or not, knew that many of our COVID policies just 
were illogical and couldn't plausibly have any scientific justification. What what could possibly be the scientific justification for having to walk into a restaurant wearing a mask while I'm standing up, but then being permitted to right. take the mask off as soon as I sit down? Right. For example, insanity. Yet s- somehow, you know, none of us could weigh in on those decisions without without being anointed uh, as having the, the requisite expertise or credentials. And I think well, this, this, this idea of a technocracy is just going to continue undermining our freedoms if we don't start pushing back. Did, did I also see your name on a, a new suit uh, regarding AB 2098 here in California? Is that just this afternoon? Yeah, that's right. That was just filed, hot off the press, uh, just got the press release from our lawyer at the New Civil Liberties Alliance uh, a, a few few hours ago, actually. So uh, this was a case, uh, we may have discussed it last time I was on, I don't recall, but the, the California legislature passed a law and Governor Newsom signed it uh, recently, basically allowing the med- empowering the medical board to discipline, including potentially removing the medical license of any physician who contra, uh, contradicted the "quote unquote" certain current scientific content, consensus? No, no. They actually, the word right. the word is standard of care. The word is standard of care that they used. That's their language. Because I because I actually called the board and had a meeting with them, and you you should you should be aware of this. It was very interesting. It, it, it is because that was because standard of care was the the organizing um, rationality. Because I, you know, I've had to fight the standard of care in medicine many times, whether it was overprescribing yeah. of opiates or using ice picks for psychosurgery, or what. I mean, it, standard of care has been sure. horrific <laughs> many, many times, and I've right. had to stand up to it, and I've been crushed by bureaucracies for doing so. Yeah. And no, no apologies or thank yous. You know, ten years later, after fighting it for years, at least I don't get the lawsuits that the Walmart is getting today, for instance, which they they did not stand up to any of this. I did. Um, and I called them, and they were very accommodating. The current president of the board is really trying to have a relationship with so-called good physicians. They're they're very focused on far outlying physicians. But what I was trying to get them to understand was, you get a complaint from the board, it destroys your life for weeks. Yeah, I mean you are you are upside down for weeks, and I couldn't get them That's to right. understand. That that was none of us who are not or doing everything right really feel like they're going to successfully persecute prosecute us for something we, you know, we're doing right. We feel like we can defend ourselves. The problem is to defend ourselves means stopping practice, hiring an attorney, That's thousands right. of hours of uh, research and medical records and whatever else it might be. And I could not get them to understand how how impossible that is for the average physician. Yeah. That's what we worry about, that this is just going to be more nuisance actions. And that's exactly right, Drew. And to avoid that, I think the real impact of the law is not just going to be those physicians who who have a cloud of suspicion hanging over them or who are potentially disciplined under this law, but it will have a chilling effect on any physician who has questions about you know, the current, quote, current standard of care, current scientific consensus mm-hmm. on COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just, they're just going to have to parrot the line that's coming from the California Department of Public Health, whether or not they agree or, or disagree with it. And this, yes, you know, a physician right. with a gag order is not a physician that you can trust. Um, but so many physicians will self-censor, will be, which will be just as harmful 
to good medical practice yes. and to the doctor-patient relationship. Listen, I, listen how complicated know, it gets. I, 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 I had a patient today. I was had a patient today who I was trying to figure out optimum timing for the bivalent vaccine. She's 80 plus years yeah. old. She has benefited. She's had COVID. She's benefited. Family members have died of COVID. We had a complicated conversation, complicated situation. You know, multiple previous boosters. And you know, when do we time the? And the the one of the family members said, "Well, what if I was 30?" And I said, "Well." I, I'm not allowed to have that conversation with you because I've got some concerns. You know, it's right. like it's like this is crazy. This is so yeah. nutty. But anyway, so I, I I'm gonna we gotta get Kelly in here in just a second. I've got a couple of things I want to get out of the way before we bring Kelly in here. You you've raised so many very interesting yeah. issues. So just so I'm clear, you're in the app, appellate court for your original lawsuit, and you're now right. a, a plaintiff in this new AB 2098 case. Yes, that's right. And we're two things going on. challenging this in federal court also on First Amendment grounds that this violates the constitutional First Amendment free speech rights of physicians. I don't think this law is going to uh, withstand judicial scrutiny. It seems to me and, and to the other physician plaintiffs in, in my case to be a clear violation of our constitutional rights. But of course, in the meantime, we, we still have to contend uh, with, uh, that, then with that law. Right. Uh, and then just to work clear, you were the chairman of the bioethics committee at UC Irvine, correct? Right. Bioethics. Bio right. Does anybody, does, does the irony of raising a bioethical issue and being fired for it, does it escape the administration at UC Irvine? Do, do they not understand the irony of what they've done? Um, you know, it certainly was a headline a year ago, you know, university ethics professor, fired after he challenged the ethics of the university's policy. Um, and I hope that irony wasn't lost on the university administration. Um, but, you know, they, they clearly did not want to try to work with me to find a suitable solution to our differences right. of, right. of and, opinion. I'll, yeah. I'll mention too, and, Drew, uh, just, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to mention uh, one I was other say, loss. I, Often, but that no, before you mention, I want you to follow it with how the public health was militarized following following nine yeah. eleven. That that history is not clear to me. But go ahead and talk about the lawsuit first. So yeah, the third lawsuit that I'm involved in uh, was filed by the attorney generals of Missouri and Louisiana against the Biden administration for alleged collusion uh, to basically pressure social media companies to to censor online voices that were contradicting their preferred pandemic policies. And that in that Missouri v. Biden case, there are four private plaintiffs, including me and two authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. So that's another free speech issue that I'm uh, trying to address on the federal level. Uh, but, but back to your question. Okay, so the militarization of public health has been going on for about 20 years. There have been a series of tabletop pandemic exercises that started around 2001 and continued on into uh, the, the most recent one was just literally a couple of weeks before the first cases of COVID-19 were reported. And these involved it very was shockingly, it was shockingly uh, similar to what happened and continues <laughs> to happen. Like, like yeah, bizarrely sim similar enough to turn any, anyone into a tin, tin hat, tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist, because it was literally about a coronavirus outbreak that killed millions of people 
around the world. It was quite yeah. and, but and that there was a vaccine problem that caused myocarditis. Yeah, no, right. It was all these things. It was <laughs> like, oh my god, that's right. So it was oh gosh. it's wild. So I describe Event Two Hundred One in the book, and this is all publicly available information. You can watch this whole tabletop simulation on on YouTube. Uh, but that was the latest in a whole series of these things that's been occurring for the last 20 years. And every one of these simulations, which involves high-level government officials, high-level national security officials, so Avril Hines, who's now the head of all of our national security agencies, participated in Event 201, uh, the director of, uh, former director of the CDC has participated in, in many of these things as well. Uh, and all of these basically end with the takeaway point is we need increasing levels of authoritarian control over the entire population. We need to be able to control the flow of information through everything from censorship to Internet shutdowns, which some countries resorted to during COVID. Um, and we need a coerced Mac. All of them end with a coerced mass vaccination campaign where the right of informed consent, the right of informed refusal is denied to, to people when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to the vaccine. And so all of these are pushing in the direction of increasing uh, use of digital technologies for the surveillance of entire populations, which happened during COVID. Again, this is not conspiratorial. Vice broke the story a couple of months ago that the CDC has been extracting track and trace data from phones without the consent of the, the us, users. And that data, which is supposedly anonymous, researchers at Princeton showed it can, be, it can very easily be de-identified with only, uh, or de-anonymized rather, that specific individuals uh, can be tied to you know, the specific data points uh, in those large bulk collections. So these new levels of intrusion on our privacy, new levels of, um, of you know, control over large-scale populations. These have been gamed out actually for the last 20 years. And they were, they were first kind of tested, you could say, on a mass scale during COVID with lockdowns, vaccine mandates, vaccine passports that we saw over the last few years. Uh, but the plans for this, as I dug into the research, I realized um, that this kind of bi uh, biosecurity model of governance uh, started percolating shortly after 9-11 and really gained steam in the last 10 years and then kind of manifested publicly during the pandemic. And as I said, the infrastructure is all still in place. We have proof of concept testing that most people will accept these measures um, if they're sufficiently afraid or, uh, it, you know, if the, if the, perceived crisis is, is severe enough. And, um, and so the book, the new abnormal book is, is really about where this is going to go next. I talk about some of the next steps, uh, that we're right, starting hold to on, hold on that. Hold, hold on that. I know Dr. Dr. Victor will be very interested in that. And I'll just make a comment before we go to break. It just, it's so interesting to me that, you know, bioethics was a, uh, theoretical, uh, experience or theoretical pursuit, academic pursuit for you, who knew you were going to have to live it every moment of your professional life, uh, both in a courtroom and in terms of uh, writing books and, and yeah. living a certain kind of life. Susan, you want to comment on that? Yeah. Also, we're having a little tech problem with his earbuds. We'd like you to 
Uh, oh, okay. Caleb's going to text you on the break because it's making a little, a little clicky noise. Yeah, yeah no problem. Scratchy I can noise. try. I think I might have some. All right, in. hold on. Well, no, stay, uh, stay put. The tech, uh, Caleb will text you. Uh, we'll take a little break. I talked to him we'll, on the phone. And we'll be back with Dr. Cariotti and uh, Dr. Kelly Victory after this. Great. Consumer price index yet again going up. Stock market in turmoil. What's our government doing to quell the surge of inflation that is gutting American families? Oh, yeah, they're spending more money and adding to the burden. Don't bury your head in the sand while your savings get decimated. It's time to do something about this. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew. Now, I don't give investment advice, but you can visit birchgold, B-I-R-C-H, gold.com slash Drew. Birchgold will send you a free info kit on protecting your savings with gold in a tax-sheltered account. Great people with almost 20 years of experience converting IRAs and 401ks into precious metals IRAs. Don't let your savings lose value. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew and claim your free no obligation info kit from Birch Gold. You can own physical gold and silver in a tax-sheltered retirement account, and Birch Gold will help you do it. Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of satisfied customers. Check them out now. Visit birchgold.com drew and secure your future with gold. Do it now. For a long time, I've been talking about the holy grail of skincare, Genucel, and the amazing results that both Susan and I have seen. I'm a big fan of Genucel's Silky Smooth XV. It's a moisturizer soaked right into my skin instantly. And with its immediate effects, I saw fine lines and wrinkles visibly disappear within 12 hours. Susan loves Genucel's Vitamin C Serum, infused with the purest vitamin C, absorbs to the deepest layer of the skin thanks to Genucel's proprietary skincare technology. I am a snob when it comes to using products on my face. The dermatologist makes a ton of money from me. But when I was introduced to Genucel, I was so happy because it's so affordable and it works great. I was introduced to the Ultra Retinol Cream, which I love at night. All the eye creams are amazing. People notice my skin all the time, and I'm so excited because it's actually working. And right now, Genucel has bundled my favorite products and Susan's for you to try today for up to 60% off retail pricing. That's right. Save up to 60% on my favorite Genucel products today. Just go to genucel.com Drew to see what's in our bundles and receive an extra 10% off at checkout when you enroll in their personal concierge at checkout. That again is genucel.com slash Drew, G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash D-R-E-W. The parallel economy has empowered us to care for our health, well-being, as well as longevity. Likewise, for us pet parents who now have a place to go when it comes to keeping the family dogs, cats, even horses in the best shape possible. As a dog dad, I'm thrilled to be working with Pet Club 24-7, a company founded by two guys who lost dogs to serious conditions, including cancer. Pet Club 24-7 has an incredible array of products, including a line of supplements for humans, such as the Inforce Plus Corollius Versicolor and Inforce Corollius Versicolor with Reishi. My friend and colleague, Christina Ferrari, a cancer survivor herself, swears by it. When I was diagnosed, the doctor in the emergency room told me, you have two years to live. Oh, boy. Along with the stem cell, I took these. I have been in remission for eight years now. For dogs, mush puppy treats are a fan favorite. Rex, you want to, oh, boy. <laughs> he came right. Oh, there he is. They are also made with the Coriolis Versicolor Mushroom, 
which supports their immune system, according to hundreds of clinical studies. Here's Kristen Ludlow, National Vice President. That strain does matter. We do have the most potent strain, and we also extract it in a proprietary way. And that's why we've been having such wonderful experiences with these products. Mush puppies are made here in the U.S. There are no fillers. It's non-addicting. Your dog can't accidentally overdose. Go to drdrew.com slash petclub247 for a discount off the list price. That is drdrew.com. P-E-T-C-L-U-B-247, Pet Club 247. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. This episode ends here. The rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. Welcome, Dr. Kelly Victory. I know you've been uh, anxiously listening to what Dr. Kayati was talking about. I'm sure you've formulated a whole interesting set of questions. Let's get at it. I know. I don't even know where to start. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with that. Um, And I'm going to push back a little bit on Drew for a second here. I don't think for one minute, Drew, that the board, quote, doesn't get it, that when they uh, when they challenge a physician or when a physician has a uh, complaint filed against them, that they don't understand what that means. As someone who is, I've defended myself seven times during this pandemic against Crazy. complaints against in various states, they- and you are quite right, it takes hours of your, of your life. Oh my God. Hours, yeah. by the way, that yes. you will never get back. Um, and anxiety and frankly, evoking and expense for attorneys. And, but, but what I want to, what yes. I want to convey to you is and not that they don't get it. I mean, it wasn't like they couldn't understand the words. They seemed unconcerned about that feature. They were just focused well, on we're think, getting bad doctors. So don't worry. Cause you're not a bad doctor. It's like, no, uh, that's not the issue that all us good doctors, uh, all of us are worried about the time spent with these complaints. And you're created an, an environment where this is going to escalate. I suspect and, that they know in that that's part of their method, but I'd be interested in Dr. Cariotti's impression of it. Yeah. Well, look, here's, here's the other issue that's I think very much related to this and related uh, drew to your conversation with the medical board, because when he signed the law, Governor Newsom did something unusual. He actually appended a kind of commentary trying to reassure physicians that, look, this is only going to be for the fringe crazies that are, you know, the, the implication right. was, you know, if you're telling your patient to swallow bleach to take care of COVID, then you're going to run into trouble with the medical board. Um, you know, but right. if you have a, a subtle difference of opinion on a controversial topic, don't worry about it. But the, pro- the problem with that is that the law is what the law says. And so the only thing that matters at the end of the day is the language of the law. You might have people on the medical board now that don't want to apply the law you know, too broadly or too widely, but those people are going to turn over and the law is going to stay on the books. That, that, and that's exactly what I told Christina Lawson. Court, the president. I told the president that I said, well, I'm going to reassure when she's there, but I wonder she's not there. It's exactly. going to be scary, but your defense, go ahead. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're de- the only thing you can rely on for your defense is the language in the law. Right. So governor Newsom, you know, if you want to take him at, at his word, the medical board, if you want to take them at their word may not be interested in going after physicians on, on questions that are definitely open to uh, scientific debate. Uh, but there's no guarantee that that wouldn't happen in the future. And if that happens, your only defense is 
to be able to say, I didn't violate what is actually in the law, not what was in Governor Newsom's, you know, appendage, which has no legal binding power, not, you know, based on my conversation three years ago with someone on the medical board. So the language of the law matters. And just just trying to pull back and say, oh, no, 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 we're, we're only going to apply it here or there. That's that's not reassuring at all, because if there's a complaint against you, the only thing that you can rely on is right. the language of the law. And the law is just written far too broadly and should uh, should be of concern to all physicians for that very reason. Well, one of my concerns in this discussion, we certainly have talked a lot about AB 2098, uh, Drew and I have in, in previous shows. One of my concerns yeah. is that we always focus on what this means for physicians. It's very, it's a physician oriented uh, piece of legislation. But what we haven't talked about is from the patient's perspective. That's right. Patients should be yeah. terrified. I mean, there's a reason why Absolutely. there are laws in place, for example, that prevent doctors from self referring to their own radiology uh, clinic or their yeah. own laboratory, for example. There's a reason I wouldn't hire an auto mechanic or a plumber who is bound by law to not say anything against GM or to say anything That's against right. Toyota. I mean, I would be yeah. terrified. Patients need to worry now. When I walk into that office and the doctor suggests X, Y, or Z treatment or course of action, they need to be asking themselves, is this what Dr. Victory really believes is best for me, really thinks is what the literature would lead her to conclude? Or is it just that she doesn't want to lose her damn license? I mean, this from the patient's perspective should Absolutely. be terrifying. Absolutely. And, and how that's, do we that's the worst part of this? Um you know, I'm challenging it legally based on the doctor's free speech rights, but that you know the worst mm -hmm. harms are not doctor's free speech rights. Right. Um, they're they're to the patient. And actually, if you look at free speech, um, uh, prior pr uh, legal precedent and jurisprudence, one of the interesting things that's been established by the Supreme Court about the right of free speech is that it's not just a right that impacts the person who is speaking, but uh, just as importantly. Uh, the right of free speech is important for the person on the receiving end of information, that people have a right to hear different perspectives so that they can weigh both sides of a debate and formulate their own opinions. And when you restrict the free speech rights of certain groups of people or certain uh, speech content, it harms not just the people who can't say certain things, but it also harms the people who could benefit from hearing those things. And in this case, it's obviously patients who uh, need to know exactly what their physician thinks. They can decline their physician's recommendation. They can go seek a second opinion if they're skeptical of their physician's, you know, advice or viewpoint. But no one, I, no one across the political spectrum, I can't think of anyone who would want to go to a doctor and ask their doctor a question right. and not actually hear what their physician thinks but instead hear some template that the doctor was dictated to answer with, you know, on the part of the state. Right. No, yeah, you, you quoted exactly my, uh, my position. I was the first uh, co-plaintiff with uh, President Trump in his class action lawsuit against big tech. I was yep. uh, permanently yep. banned from Twitter, YouTube, Facebook uh, very early on. And my contention was exactly that, that this is, not just about Dr. Kelly Victory's right to free speech, 
but more importantly about the rights of everyone to hear what I have to say and to hear alternative opinions. Right. Uh, Drew and I, really the basis of these Wednesday shows with Drew was to provide a platform uh, originally for me and then for others who have been mercilessly censored, derided, ridiculed, yeah. marginalized, um, because we really benefit. And in the past, you know, in the past, robust, vigorous debate was the cornerstone of medicine. Um, we really, right. we relied on it. And this is the first time, at least in, in my career of 30 plus years, that I can remember that that not only wasn't lauded, but was actually uh, shut down. Now, yeah. one of the things I want to ask you about is, um, you know, you quoted the two two things about um, the re that made the mandate, the vaccine mandate, in your mind, um, illegal or unconstitutional. Number one, mm -hmm. that it ignored natural immunity, and number two, that it did not prevent uh, infection or transmission. The, the the basis of the mandates. What you right. didn't uh, talk about, or and I don't know if you do in your book. Um, is the ethics of it, the issue that yeah. the based on the Nuremberg Code, we cannot compel or mandate someone to participate in an experiment. And as of today, November 2nd, 2022, all of the vaccines available in the United States remain experimental. They are not FDA right. approved. So talk about that from a bioethics perspective. We're forcing somebody to participate in an experiment. How is that not a violation of the Nuremberg Code? Yeah. yeah thank you for that question, Dr. Vic Victory. I do talk about that in The New Abnormal. In fact, the prologue to the book uh, begins by saying, this book is about our future, but I start with a cautionary tale from the not-too-distant past. And the title of the prologue is Nuremberg 1947 which details the eugenics movement. People typically think of Nazi Germany with the eugenics movement. Most folks are not aware that uh, forced sterilization and other uh, violations of informed consent started in the United States and Great Britain in the early 20th century and was only later in the 20s and 30s exported to Germany, which copied laws in the United States, the, the forced sterilization laws in the United States. Uh, so I, I described the eugenics movement and what it led to in the United States, Britain, and eventually in Germany. And then the world reacted following World War II with the Nuremberg trials, which included the Nazi doctor trials. And one of the key things to come out of those uh, trials and the, you know, the, the public hearing on the ab gross abuses that occurred was the Nuremberg Code, which most people have heard of, a uh, few people have read. I do encourage listeners to go do a search and read the Nuremberg Code. It's a short, like two-page document. It's, it's mm -hmm. not long. It's not complicated. But the very first principle articulated there, you know, the, the bulwark against the kind of abuses that we saw in uh, under Nazism and in the eugenics movement uh, elsewhere, the first principle articulated is the principle of informed consent that adults of sound mind have the right to decide what medical interventions they will accept or refuse and have the right to decide whether or not to participate in research, whether to be a, a, a subject in a, an experiment. And as you said, under our own federal laws definitions, these vaccines are still experimental because they're approved only for emergency use, the Pfizer vaccine community that was given provisional 
FDA approval is still not available in the United States. Um, so, uh, yes, that that was the key issue in um, in my deciding that I needed to challenge vaccine mandates. My legal case, I I focused on the issue of natural immunity and this sort of empirical argument that I articulated earlier because I, I think that was an issue that we could win on in the courts. But the deeper and more fundamental issue was the fact that the right of informed consent had been completely just tossed overboard during the pandemic. And I think that's, I think that's an enormous mistake. And, um, you know, this, the pandemic was an opportunity to reaffirm the central doctrine in Nuremberg that people have the right to decide uh, whether to be part of an experiment, that they have the right to decide what medical interventions they want for themselves or for their children who are not old enough yet to give consent. Well, I, yeah, I think that this is a, um, it's a critical issue to me. Um, you know, obviously I've been fighting the mandates from the beginning, but the, you know, if people look back to the Nuremberg trials, I mean, there were, you know, seven physicians hung after Nuremberg. That's I mean, right. there were, they, they, That's these, right. you know, they, they, this penalty. was, this was, yeah, this was death penalty this stuff. This is serious. So, th- yeah. Yeah. So the question is really, um, you know, when we get to the issue of uh, if you put on your psychiatrist hat, you know, how does the country, how does the world ever heal from this egregious debacle? Everything from just the horrific handling of the pandemic itself to the kinds of uh, censorship and and canceling and people like you and the you know thousands of military people who lost storied careers um, because they chose to to make their own decision. You know how do we hold them account without accountability? Um, I would submit right. there is there will never be healing. Do you think we will end up going down the road of um, of a Nuremberg 2.0? We lost Dr. He just disappeared. I don't know if we lost. Yeah, I, I think I saw him yeah. press the button. Funny, we had a big. There, you're back. We had a big power outage in my office today. I was wondering if it was something that got different. <laughs> I was thinking it's NSA. A, I want to add a. I want to add a code. Uh, Susan thinks so too. I want to add a code to what you just asked, and and just uh, just to a, a tag it because we framed it as you as a psychiatrist. We've not talked about mass formation and or mass formation psychosis, as it's sometimes called, right. and its role in all of this. Is is there something there that also must be done to get us all the way out and through and seeing things clearly, Dr. Cariotti? Yeah, so on the mass formation question, we, we have to work at overcoming our fear. We know that fear was deliberately deployed uh, by governments using highly refined techniques of wartime propaganda uh, to um, it, to deliberately increase the level of fear in the population as a method to try Terrible. to increase compliance with public health directives. This is very well documented. Oh my God. Lord I, Dodsworth, I, I, do you have that documented somewhere? I, books I, about I, it. Well, Lord Dodsworth, at least uh, weed it out. In Great Britain, wrote uh, wrote a book on this. Actually, right. I, I, the title is escaping me at the moment. But there were at least two books. Uh, very well documented, credible uh, books from credible mm-hmm. sources describing kind of how this happened. Um, and so, yeah, ha- happy to send those references later. So, yeah, there's a lot that needs to be done in that regard to help people who are still living under a cloud of of fear um, to uh, you know to to be able to relinquish um, 
that fear and start thinking clearly again, because I can say as a psychiatrist, if you're paralyzed by anxiety, you're not going to be able to think and reason clearly. Um, that was done to make people more pliable and more easily uh, kind of manipulated and to get people to obey public public health orders. Um, but there's it should be obvious, hopefully to folks, that there's huge uh, ethical problems with governments behaving in that way. Um, and and back, back to uh, Dr. Victory's question about accountability. Uh, do we need another Nuremberg trial? Well, I think there were some people who acted deliberately in bad faith and in, in some cases perhaps even uh, violated the law. And certainly if you, if you broke the law as a public official, uh, you should be held accountable and you should go to jail for that. Um, there was an there was an article published uh, a day or two ago in the Atlantic that's received a lot of attention this week, uh, talking about amnesty after uh, the pandemic. Let's just sort of um, stop fighting about COVID and stop blaming people and just kind of move on. And and while I'm sympathetic to um, proposals to reconcile and to heal, I mean certainly. There, there are a lot of people that are wounded out there. There are people that are divided. There are broken relationships, broken family relationships, friendships that ended over disagreements about, about COVID policies. And so we're living in a culture, in a society that needs healing, that needs reconciliation. But if you look at how that's been done successfully at a social level, look at South Africa after apartheid, or you look at some of the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions uh, after the Rwandan genocide. Those truth and reconciliation commissions have to begin with truth. You can't leapfrog over the truth stage just to get to the reconciliation stage. And my concern about the proposal in the Atlantic was that the people who are responsible for those harmful policies have not owned up to the, to their responsibility, have not acknowledged the harms, have not publicly apologized to the people who were harmed. And in cases where the harm can be at least partially rectified, that also needs to be done. So, you know, some of the harms are permanent. You know, the, the, the kids who were harmed by school closures are not going to get those developmental years back. They're going to be right. dealing with those harms for decades. But the people who were fired unjustly, you know, they should be offered their jobs back mm -hmm. with pay, as the city of New York recently was required by the right. courts to do. Uh, for employees that they fired under the unjust vaccine mandates. So reconciliation, yes, but that has to begin with truth, um, with public apologies, with responsibility acknowledged, and with attempts to rectify some of the injustices where they can be uh, amended. That's how a society heals and move for moves forward. We don't heal by just kind of sweeping things under the rug, which is really an effort to evade responsibility rather than assume mm -hmm. responsibility forward. You know, Drew and I have talked uh, extensively about this issue of fear um, because I, I, I agree with you. Fear is clearly an incredibly powerful tool for manipulating people and to driving yeah. people uh, to comply. There's no question. And look, they have continued to try to promote it. First, it was monkeypox. Now, just yep. this week, it's the, the triple threat of influenza, RSV, and That's COVID, right. and oh my God, yeah. the hospitals. And, you know, the sky is always falling because they cannot let go 
of this sphere because it is such a powerful and useful tool. And that's what that's it right. is. It is a tool. There was an article that just printed in this sort of obscure um, journal called Minerva. I haven't even gotten it to, to Drew yet. It just uh, hit yesterday called Censors Censorship and Suppression of COVID yeah. Heterodoxy. I don't know if you've yeah. looked at it, but it's interesting. I have. It, yeah. One of the co-authors sent it to me yesterday, and it, this is an important piece. Yeah, it's sort of weird to read it because it's it's presented as sort of a case study. Uh, it's really a survey or an interview with they interviewed thirteen different uh, MDs or PhDs or both, so highly qualified, highly trained scientists yeah. and physicians with backgrounds in everything from epidemiology to virology and public health. They talked about the different methods, and this is I'm speaking to the point that this is a very concerted effort on the part of the government, because the ways that they censored people and suppressed information came from a playbook. There's absolutely yeah. every single person right. had been subjected to the same sort of tactics. Yep. I certainly yep. was, you know, on this very program, you know, we've had Robert Malone, Peter McCullough, Harvey yep. Reich, you know, Paul <laughs> Alexander, you know, Spiro uh, Pantazonis, you know, and on and yes. on. All of these <laughs> yeah. people and mine yeah, too, yeah. and people who every one of us has been subjected to the same thing. It's yep. not just suppressing you on Twitter. It's the smear jobs in the press. That's right. It's publishing heinous things about you. It's trying to suggest yep. that you're a whack job or a conspiracy theorist, yep. that you're evil, that all you've got to believe that this is coming from a from a playbook. Um, but then my question is, of those names, I just rattled off a handful. And we are people who, you know, present company included, who represent medical degrees from some of the most highly respected institutions in the United States. It's the Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Duke. Yep. You know, we are not a bunch of, you know, sort of offshore graduates, you know, who, <laughs> who, you know, went to the Sally Struthers School of Medicine. You know, this yeah. is, we, we are people with decades. Why, how has this happened that people are not questioning, wait a minute, how can there be not just one or two people with these theories, but dozens, perhaps, I mean, hundreds of, of us. And no one's questioning why we all kind of have come to the same conclusion. What's that about? Well, a big part of the problem is just the control of the flow of information, as we talked about before, uh, with the suppression of free speech. Um, my other lawsuit, uh, which alleges that the federal government was dictating to social media companies down to the level right. of, you know, why haven't you kicked off this person from your platform yet? Mm -hmm. And then Facebook or Twitter coming back and saying, oh, don't worry, we'll take, we'll, we'll, we'll toss that person in, in, you know, in response to your mm -hmm. directives. And, and arguably, there's legal arguments that private social media companies can uh, censor and deplatform de people. Even, even that's debatable. But inarguably, no one doubts that the federal government cannot do that and cannot suborn social media companies to do its bidding. That's a clear First Amendment uh, violation, if ever there was one. Uh, so the control of the flow of information has projected a false sense of a scientific consensus where there is none. Just the fact that these voices have a hard time reaching people uh, because the means of communication are cut off for many of them. Mm -hmm. 
I also talk in the new article, I talk in the book about uh, the way in which many of our public health institutions and the institutions of science and medicine have been captured by the, the very interests that um, the CDC, FDA, and NIH were meant to regulate. Uh, for example, uh, we know that the NIH gives uh, uh, massive grants that basically support 80% of biomedical research in the United States. And if you're, if you're a professor in a school of medicine, if you're a researcher in a school of medicine, if you don't get NIH grants, you don't advance, you right. don't stick around. So, mm -hmm. uh, but what you have is a very small number of people at the NIH who control that funding. Anthony Fauci, of course, being one of the people in that kind of cabal. Uh, right. But no one at the public university who relies on NIH grants is going to want to stick their neck out and uh, criticize NIH policy uh, or uh, Department of Health and Human Services, mm -hmm. which oversees the NIH, uh, is going to want to criticize, you know, C uh, FDA um, or uh, uh, approvals or CDC recommendations because they know it may impact their funding. So you control many scientific voices by controlling the purse strings. Uh, yeah. You control the brave voices who still speak out at some risk to their career by controlling the flow of information. Um, this is not some overheated dystopian fantasy. It's all well-known, uh, well-documented. I try to lay it out as best I can uh, in my book. Uh, it's. I think th there's a need for very deep-seated reform of our public health agencies uh, to, uh, to remove these obvious conflicts of of interest. I mean, starting with the fact that the NIH co-owns the patent on the Moderna vaccine. Right. Uh, so they they literally and individuals within Anthony Fauci's division, um, you know, literally get money, uh, you know, every month from the sale of that vaccine. This is not a group of people that's going to be objective. Uh, you know, when there are dissident scientists that are right. critiquing this that vaccine-related policy. Well, there, there's no, there's absolutely no question that the money is a huge, huge driver. And I don't think anyone disputes that. Uh, we are just starting, I think, to get our arms around um, really just how deep that, that goes um, with those institutions. Uh, Bobby Kennedy uh, and I, and, and we, we discussed it with Drew, he's really has tried yeah. to expose some of that really yeah. deep co corruption that, that way predated, by the way. Uh, the COVID pandemic. This has been something that's, that's right. been going on that's for right. probably 50 years. Yeah. But one of the things that Drew and I have also talked about quite a bit, and I'd love your take on it, is there's been a um, perhaps subtle, maybe not so subtle in the last two and a half years, change in the philosophy of medical education, absolutely yeah. public health education. Yeah. Uh, I am, yeah. have a deep background in public health from places like Harvard. Um, and there's a a real change in how they are educating young physicians, what their focus is on, you know, th right. their just reliance on equity. And, and so, so what's yes. your, how does that play into this whole, how this whole thing was allowed to happen in your mind? Yeah. Sad to say medical education has become more and more influenced by ideologies that have very little to do with science and medicine. Uh, it produced a kind of closed-minded thinking 
that is inimical to scientific inquiry. You know, science and censorship are absolutely incompatible. Uh, science is about um, conjecture and refutation and hypothesis um, and, you know, art, empirical evidence. You put a group of real scientists or, or uh, thoughtful physicians together in a room and they'll argue endlessly about the, you know, right. the subtleties of these findings or the methods of that study or the upshot of the research in this question as a whole. Uh, that's good science uh, is characterized by ongoing debate, open-ended conversation, always an openness to new data. Uh, but we're training physicians to think algorithmically. We're, uh, we're mm -hmm. training physicians to sort of slavishly follow recipes and to click through yeah. um, a, a pre-made yeah. template on a medical record. Yep. Uh, this is not a good way to... I that's what I'm physicians. saying. That's exactly what I thought. And I'm not in there teaching yeah. right now, but it seemed to me that's exactly yeah. what was happening. Yeah. That and then centralization of authority. So now all authority right. flows to a central place. And that is central right. authority is often now an employer or a bureaucratic system that has no interest in the patient. And it's just the worst possible medicine. It's I, I'm while you guys were talking, I was reading that Minerva article, Kelly, that you recommended. Yeah. It is yeah fascinating it is fascinating reading yeah. because yeah. it's described it looked at exactly what you were describing it looked at the people right. that were censored and one of the one of the big standouts is doctors with flawless resumes resumes senior right. academic or medical status these were the ones yeah. being censored and it was like right. that and then that they're questioning why would the people of the uh, utmost integrity the a lifelong yeah. career at, of maintaining highest level clinical and scientific integrity these are the ones you want to censor right. why don't you right. take a beat and listen yeah. to these folks uh, it's it's really too it's so in yeah. it, it describes then how each of these folks you yourself responded was first shock and disbelief mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. sort of uh, trying to fight back and then further censored and then coming up with alternative platforms and ways to express and sort of get the information out there very interesting yeah a, a gener on the issue of centralization a generation ago a few decades ago 80 percent of physicians were in private practice right. and 20 yep. percent were for large bureaucratic healthcare organizations now it's um, the opposite you know, whether it's, right. now it's the opposite that's that's exactly right, right. yeah and uh that that's that has had an effect on medicine on the practice of medicine on medical education um uh, and a lot of times now we have bureaucrats uh, calling the shots rather than the physician mm -hmm. yeah. at the bed bedside individualizing patient care to the needs of this specific patient we, we get these one size fits all um, policies or mandates that treat every patient as as equivalent as fungible um and that is not that is not a, a, a sound approach to medical care um it, it runs directly contrary to our hippocratic tradition and uh and patients feel the effects of that they, they may not be able to put it into words but they know that i you know i feel like a cog in this medical machinery now and, and what I what I've sometimes called turnstile medicine. You know, I, I go into the I go into the large healthcare organization. I'm sort of shuttled through the system at, as though I'm an interchangeable part. And in fact, my doctor is an interchangeable part because I I rarely right. see the same doctor twice. Um, and they're staring at a screen and they're running through a checkbox based algorithm and and spitting out 
an answer at the other end that may or not may may or may not comport with my actual situation. So I think doctors and physicians are are both sensing there's something deeply, deeply wrong with the direction that medicine has gone in in the last few decades. And, and that was one of the factors that I think made possible our very misguided pandemic response, you know, that that proceeded with very little dissent from physicians, sad to say. Well, here's where I suspect this is ultimately leading. Um, I've said for a long time that, you know, when I was in training, uh, you know, the, the, it was if you did a good history, if you did a good history, you'd be 80% to, you know, to having the answer of what's right. And right. the other 20% yep, right, was yep. based on the physical exam. Okay. So yep. that, that's how I trained. Today, fast forward 30 years. They don't even do a physical exam. They want the CAT scan, the MRI, right. the lab results. Yeah, just, right. They just, just hand it to them. They don't even they don't even just order a bunch yeah. of tests. It, exactly. Yeah. And then document it all in, in check boxes. You know, an electronic medical record, frankly, is a fancy billing template, is all it is, because it generates, as you know, a horrific yeah. accounting of what really happened during the interaction with the patient. It's really right. primarily for billing. So and then on top of it, now you add in things like AB 2098, where essentially you could say to the patient, you don't need to go to see the doctor. Here's the pamphlet from the CDC and the FDA. Right. Here's the approved right. here's the approved set of things. Just look it up. Why yeah. do you need to even see see the doctor? You know, and this has been going again for a long time. And, you know, we there are other components to it, the addition of physician extenders, you know, saying you don't need to see the yeah. doctor, you can just see the PA, yep. that's enough. And you can talk to the nurse, you don't actually need to, to see the doctor. So what I think is that this is probably a bigger picture of essentially, you know, making the whole medical uh, industry or physicians, at least our component of it, obsolete. Um, we really will be a luxury and a thing of the past other than for the top you know, 1% of the population that can afford to hire you as right. your concierge doctor on the side. Um, right. You right. made a comment, I think, or I think it was on a, a tweet that you posted about them trying to tie together the medical complex as a driver of climate change. Um, there was something about that. Yeah. I, I saw let, your tweet. Let me and I thought, that one. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> so, um, in, I describe this in more detail in, in the book. The tweet probably is is not <laughs> telling the whole story, um, but in the new abnormal, uh, I, I describe how what I call the biomedical security state um, has been redefining other issues as public health issues. And there's a couple of mm -hmm. you know recent examples that are very simple and easy to understand. Um, over the last few years, even starting prior to the pandemic. Uh, climate change started, if you read the headlines on climate change, the way in which it's presented the public and, and bracket for a moment, you know, or any differences of opinion we may have on climate change, climate policy, whatever, regardless of your views on the issue, climate change has been redefined from primarily an ecological or an environmental issue to a public health issue. It's now presented primarily in terms of health harms to human populations. And now we have serious proposals from Ivy League academics, from politicians who are in positions of power to use things like rolling lockdowns to deal with the climate crisis um, or to deal with the energy crisis. People may remember also in the first year of the pandemic, during the first lockdowns, 
there was a, a group of 1,200 uh, public health, quote unquote, experts who published a, a public letter declaring that racism was a public health emergency. This was during the, the mass gatherings, the, the protests following the death of George Floyd uh, and, and the, uh, the associated uh, BLM riots and so forth. Uh, again, regardless of your views on how to address the issue of racism, uh, very interesting to note that there was this effort, this push to reframe racism uh, from primarily a moral issue or social and political issue to a public health issue. Well, what happens when you take these issues and these debates um, out of that realm and you put them in the realm of public health and suddenly they become something for the technocratic experts rather than ordinary citizens to try and address? Um, and so what I, what I suggest, suggest in the new abnormal, and I try to provide those and, and other examples to, um, to illustrate this, is that we've developed a model of governance that relies on jumping from one declared emergency to the next. And COVID demonstrated that the declaration of a public health emergency is the most effective and efficient way to, to, to engage in this sort of crisis management model of governance. We're still operating uh, under a state of emergency for COVID at the federal level. You know, President Biden announced a month or so ago on 60 Minutes that the pandemic was over, which was true. In fact, it's been over right. for quite some time. But his advisors immediately panicked and said, no, 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 you can't say that. Why were they so panicked? You know, politically, it would be useful to say that coming up to the midterm elections. You'd think you want to reassure people that we're through the worst of it. Um, but the reason they didn't want him to say it out loud is that if that's true, then it means there's no longer any plausible justification for the declared state of emergency at the federal level. And under a declared state of emergency, the president gains 128 additional extra constitutional powers that he will have to relinquish if there's no longer a COVID emergency. Likewise, at the state level, in my home state here in California, we're still operating under a state of emergency declared by the governor. The governor gains additional powers he wouldn't otherwise have. Um, and so there, I think one of you mentioned earlier in the show here that they're casting about for a new public health threat to, to latch onto in order to continue operating under this crisis mode, this state of emergency mode. And that is the political logic of what I call the biomedical security state. It needs this series of ongoing crisis crises in order to advance its aims and maintain uh, these additional controls over large populations. Yeah, we're I think have to you're kind spot of on. Head, head towards, yeah, I do too. Okay. And I think we're going to have to uh, kind of head I'll, towards I'll, wrapping up and encourage everybody to read the book. We don't want to give them, give it all up here, right on the, th on the stream, but go ahead, Kelly. I was going to say another thing that I would throw into your bucket of, uh, of, issues that have been re-identified as public health issues would be uh, the gun violence. They've tried yeah. very hard That's to right. make active shooters and, mm -hmm. and, and to take it out of, you know, the reason that we can't just keep our second mm -hmm. amendment right to bear arms is because it's a public health issue, don't you know? Right. Um, and so I, I agree with you. It's, it's, politically expedient for them to do that. Um, well, I will wrap it, wrap us up. I'm, re I am really looking forward to reading the book. I, um, I think it's fascinating the, the premises you're laying out and certainly there are things that Drew and I have been talking about, um, for a long time. So I, I appreciate you putting it on paper. Uh, thanks a, 
bunch for being here with us. And uh, I'm happy to see that you're still on Twitter. I I, I don't know if I will apply <laughs> to get to, to get reinstated now that Elon Musk um, has promised to free the bird. Uh, I I don't mm-hmm. know even what the, the even what the procedure would be to do that, but uh, perhaps I will. Eight bucks well, a month. You can get back on. Yeah, I I, <laughs> I sense a change already on on Twitter. Uh, my following is growing much faster now that I think they changed the shadow banning algorithm, and more and more people are saying, "Hey, you're back! Thanks for coming back." Well, I never left. Did did you? Yeah, did you ever get? Did you ever get kicked off? You know, I did. You ever get? Really? I I did get kicked off. I figured out uh, how to how to walk right up to the line without going over it, Um, (laughs) and so I've 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 managed to navigate Twitter, or they've left me on there because for some other nefarious purpose i i don't know uh, but but uh whether through you know what i think stupidity no I've i think some of it was there was the, the there was such a massive that first year particularly that first six months there was such a massive panic and impulsivity yeah. around the panic that that was where people were s- severely punished for raising their hand yeah. and speaking up that that's where things got really super crazy and uh, those are the people that now yeah. need to continue standing up and asking for apologies and uh, people to take um, account of for what they have done and whom they have harmed and why. It, it, like you said, Emily Oster's article about, hey, uh, let's just forget about it, move forward. You can't. You have to see where the mistakes no. were made, acknowledge them, right. apologize for right. them. And uh, we're still trying to make sense of things, to be fair. And I, yep. I, I just I'm yep. so I'm so... Uh, I don't know what the word is, but the fact that you have to walk the walk of your bioethical training now and how difficult that must be is such an impressive feat that you're literally you, doing, dude. that is your life now, is walking that on yeah. a daily basis. And it's it's an extraordinary thing to watch. Thank you. No, I appreciate that very much. Thanks for being here. And Kelly. Well, yes, I enjoyed sir. the conversation. Kelly, thank Let's you. do it again yeah, we'll do it again. And Kelly, thank you as always for all the all you've brought to the table here. And uh, I apologize for our peers and the way they treated you. It's just very unfair, and very unfortunate thank uh, for both of you. We have uh, Clifton Duncan coming in, uh, I think, on fr- oh, Friday, Susan. Is Love that, that right? Yeah, Clifton's a good guy. I know. We I found him I early. Do too. I found him early, and I said, "I that's a guy I got to talk to." And he has been on fire lately. And I so know. I thought you got to bring yeah. him yeah. Back around. Yes, and. And tomorrow, I will just be answering questions. So I will, we will get to Twitter Spaces tomorrow at 3 o'clock Pacific time, and we will answer your questions there. I promise I will do all the calls I possibly can. Okay, so Kelly, go get some sleep. And Kelly, go get yeah, <laughs> uh, Kelly the horses and the dogs yeah, across multiple states twice. I don't understand how you did that, but uh, I'm glad to have you back in California. And uh, thank you both. And for everyone else, we will see you tomorrow at 3 o'clock Pacific Stay time. Stay strong. Keep going. See you then. Thanks, everyone. See you guys. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. 
If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help.